so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. This week we'll hear from a panel of speakers. And so if our if our gospel is that sort of abbreviated personal exchange simply for the uh, evangelistic opportunity, um, you graduate from it after you get saved. Uh, if that's the case, we're going to struggle constantly in our everyday life with how does the gospel apply to this? But here's Paul now saying your daily union with Christ, not just your conversion experience, but your daily union with Christ and your progressive sanctification and your glorification are all rooted in the historical work of Jesus Christ on the cross and out of the tomb. Then that means that it applies and empowers and gives us great consolation, uh, not just when we're trying to quote unquote change the world, but when we're changing diapers. Learning how to live out the gospel in every aspect of our lives, even waving to a neighbor, is a vital part of engaging culture. This conversation with Daniel Patterson, D.A. Horton, Jared Wilson, Matt Anderson, Trevin Wax, and Jackie Hill Perry discusses where everyday life and cultural engagement intersect. We hope you find this message helpful. great to be with you to talk about a really important and really practical kind of talk. We, uh, this panel is called Every Square Inch. It's an allusion to a, a famous uh, Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper who said, there is not a single inch of the universe over which Jesus Christ is not Lord and does not scream mine. Uh, this is a very important principle for us to think about, and I'm just delighted to be here this morning uh, with our panelists. Right here next to me, uh, D.A. Horton, you've already heard of uh, or heard from. He's pastor of Reach Fellowship in the Los Angeles area. Next to him, from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, is Jared Wilson, who serves at Midwestern as their director of content strategy and also as managing editor of the For the Church website for the seminary, which is their uh, gospel-centered site for resources for churches and leaders. He's the author of several books, including The Prodigal Church, A Gentle Manifesto Against the Status Quo. Next to him is Matt Anderson, who is the lead writer at MereOrthodoxy.com. He is the author of the book Earthen Vessels, and he's pursuing a doctorate at Oxford University. Next to him is uh, Jackie Hill Perry. We're delighted to have her. She is a speaker, a rapper, a poet. She's been featured at Desiring God, the Gospel Coalition, all over the place. Her debut album, The Art of Joy, released in 2014. And last but not least is Trevin Wax on the very end, who is the Bible and reference publisher at Lifeway Christian Resources, the author of several books, including Gospel-Centered Teaching, Showing Christ in All of Scripture. It's great to have you all here this morning. DA, I want to start with you. You know, a lot of Christians are 
unfamiliar with the idea of cultural engagement. It feels like a heady, abstract kind of topic. Mm. But in reality, most Christians are engaged in cultural engagement, whether or not they know it. So what, what can you talk about the ways that Christians engage the culture just in living their day-to-day life? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, practical ways that we engage the culture. Um, conversations uh, at the grocery store with our neighbors. Uh, volunteerism in uh, various um, areas of social influence, whether it's the local school, the library, uh, at the nursing home. Um, you also think even something as simple as cutting your grass and manicuring your lawn, if you live in an environment. Uh, I had to learn, being from the hood, when I moved into a neighborhood with a homeowners association, somebody needs to write a book on that to help <laughs> brothers like me. I don't know how to engage with an HOA. And so I thought next, my... Next year's conference. So yeah, come yeah. back. Dr. Moore, we need an onward HOA version. Um, <laughs> But basically, like my, I thought my neighbors were waving at me, and they were like, "No, you need to cut your grass." And I'm like, "Oh, oh okay." So, I, you know, but that's engaging the culture. Um, and so, I think I think we have to understand that you know we are in the swimming pool of culture, and we can't sink; we have to swim. And so, with that, um, it's something as simple as waving to your neighbors, going for a, a walk uh, around the neighborhood. I think of one quick story: is uh, we just moved into the uh, Los Angeles area. And, um, you know, our neighbors were trying to get to know us, and she was just drawn to the fact that we're a young family in this community that basically is made up of original homeowners from the 1950s. And she was like, why didn't you move to Orange County? It was almost like an offense that a young family moved into the neighborhood. And uh, I was like, well, I moved here to plant my family, plant the gospel, and to start a church. And she was like, oh, well, you know, good for you. And then she spread that message to all of our neighbors. So she's the person of peace, right? And so all of a sudden now our neighbors are talking about their thoughts on God, politics, religion, and all these things. So that was just an open door, and I just answered a simple question. That's engaging the culture. That's a good word. Jared, you know, there's this, I think it's a misnomer that when we think about cultural engagement, I think the the default mental picture that people go to is uh, that person who's always on TV or that person who's leading a big movement or leading a big organization. So my question is, how do you, how do you think that idea came to us and why do you think that's a harmful sort of idea? Yeah, well, on one level, I guess we could say um, that that sort of aspiration to bigness, yeah. uh, largesse, uh, if you will, you know, certainly there's an American spin on it or a westernized spin on it, right? We like everything supersized. Um, <laughs> Not just our, our Happy Meals, but our churches and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but really, it, it's, it's so much more ancient than that, right? They wanted to build a tower to heaven, and they said, let us make a name for ourselves. Um, this this um, equation of bigness with um, fruitfulness, uh, with faithfulness, um, has a, an ancient and spiritual root. And it even goes further back than the Tower of Babel, right? So the original rebellion, cosmic rebellion, I will be like the most high and a temptation to, to Eve, you can be like God. And so I think we have to be very careful, um, in understanding that, um, not only is the, um, equation of, uh, spiritual success, ministry success with bigness, uh, a misunderstanding of the gospel, it's actually an insurrection against the gospel. It's antithetical to the gospel, which Paul says, um, comes into the world with foolishness to shame the wise, with weakness to shame the strong. And so it's, it's not helpful for us to simply uh, equate our ability to make a change with our ability to have a platform um, because Jesus Christ himself turned that whole idea upside down. The kingdom of God comes to specifically the losers. Mm. 
and those who can own the fact that they're losers. Mm. And the minute we turn that right side up for whatever reason, even if it's ministry or politics or whatever it is, we find ourselves actually in, in opposition to the essence of the grace of God, which uh, presumes we have nothing to offer. It's easy to forget the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't That's it? right. Matt, I, uh, I want to ask you, you know, uh, very few people, relatively speaking, in the body of Christ will go on to speak in front of thousands of people or write the book that sells millions of copies. But help us think through the way that uh, culture engages. How, hey, we're still called to public engagement. What are some things that we ought to be thinking through as just individual Christians and church members and faithful men and women? Yeah, I think one of the central things is how do we bear witness to the joy and the gladness that we have been given? Um, How do we participate in those sort of practices and activities that communicate to our friends and neighbors and and to our communities that there are goods out there and that we can rejoice in those goods and delight in those goods? And that those goods are just not going away. Um, The the thing with the universe is uh, the only thing that will endure at the end of it all is goodness, the goodness that God is and the goodness that he allows us to uh, contribute to. And so I think, you know, contributing to that and, and really delighting in that means taking a long-term view of our lives and our communities and engaging in practices that seem irrelevant. Uh, I run a little Shakespeare reading group, and I think it's probably one of the most important things that I do in this world because I'm connecting myself with a way of seeing the world that is uh, being forgotten and in being uh, crowded out by contemporary ideas. And it's carrying that on for, uh, within my community and for a, a, hopefully a future generation. And it has no relevance to anything that people talk about today, like in one sense, right? It's, it's, not, it's not a sort of hot thing to, to do, sit around and read and talk about Shakespeare. But I actually think it's, it's really one of those practices that, it, that is essential because it's good and we can delight in that and that's just enough. It's worth doing for its own sake. And Christians should be the people who have the time to do those things that are worth doing for their own sake. We don't have to be urgent about everything. So I'm not sure how to segue from Shakespeare, <laughs> but I'm going to try. Uh, Jackie. He's you know, a poet, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Easy so it's been, that was yeah, great. There you go. So as we think about the issue of cultural renewal. You know, your work involves you in, uh, it's artistic, it's creative. So how would you talk about uh, how everyday Christian lives and creativity, you know, is a part of cultural renewal? What does that look like? Um, Honestly, I feel as if a large part of my efforts in renewing culture doesn't take place on stage. Um, I really believe it's more a micro level than a macro level. For example, I think the way I love my husband is a part of cultural renewal um, for the simple reason that I think there's an, a, a feminist agenda saying that I should not submit, that I should not serve, that I should not do that. Um, even his headship is a part of cultural renewal because they're trying to say that it's patriarchy or misogyny for him to lead me and love me like Christ. And so I think even in our marriage, we're working to renew culture. Um, but inviting people into that, because I mean, we could be doing that all day in our home, but we're not renewing culture if no one sees it. And so I think it's a discipleship issue too. It's like, who am I inviting to my home? Who am I serving? Who, who's coming with me to the grocery store? You know, so like, who am I linking up with so that they can be renewed 
so that they can renew. You get what I'm saying? So I think it's just a matter of uh, what I do yeah. in my home, the basic stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, Trevin, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, mission drift. So you, uh, you deal in publishing. You know, cultural engagement is something that there have been books written about, uh, quite a few things. And we're, we're talking about how the gospel intersects with every part of life. So I know in many church contexts, there's an instinct to sort of like, we've got an app for that, we've got a program for that, we've got just, let, let's do a little bit of everything. How do we guard against being, how, how do we be faithful to faithfulness in all the areas that uh, the, our Lord and the Great Commission calls us to, and yet guard against losing our focus uh, within the context of the local church? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think um, there's always the, the tendency for us to drift from what makes the church distinct, which is the, the proclamation of the gospel, uh, Lord's Supper, baptism, you know, the, these things that really make the, the, the church what it is. Um, but, you know, all great things in life have some sort of hint of danger to them. And engaging the culture is one of those things. If you think about church history uh, uh, over the years, if you think about theology, I mean, we're always on the edge of falling off, you know, denying Jesus' humanity, denying Jesus' divinity, you know, or with cultural engagement. Here we're, here we're going to be compromising, or we're just going to pull back, and then we're going to be complacent. You know, there, there's, there's always a danger to it. That's part of the thrill of Christianity. So uh, what, one of the things we have to, to, to wrestle with, uh, with that question, is to say, okay, if it's true that a lot of engagement in culture, social action, things like that, has sometimes led to a, a drift from the, the gospel, which I think can be presented, and you say, you know, you see the, a good cause begin to replace the cross as the foundation, as the unifying factor of a church. Um, that can happen, that has happened historically. And I think the, the, the response has to be, well, we're not just going to avoid the danger. We have to be fully aware of what we're, we're walking into. Um, and to avoid mission drift in church, I think several things. I think c- cultural engagement needs to be connected to the Great Commission. Mm. It's not simply a way of being cool. You know, Jared said, Jesus came for the uncool. <laughs> you know, cultural engagement might not be just, you know, hanging out at a hip, trendy coffee shop. It might, in your community, might be McDonald's, you know. That if it's simply a way of us um, uh, wanting to show that we're, you know, more culturally savvy than our fuddy-duddy fundamentalist grandparents or whatnot, then, then that is the way to disaster. Because it's more, in that case, it's more about worldly acceptance than it is about actual Great Commission understanding the people around us so that we can effectively uh, present the gospel. So connecting it to the Great Commission, I'd say, uh, being fully immersed in the, the biblical worldview, the story of the grand narrative of Scripture, uh, so that you can, you can actually understand the people around you um, you can interpret history in light of the gospel. And then a, a third thing I heard a few years ago from a member of the, the Gospel Coalition that has stuck with me when it comes to cultural engagement and not drifting from the mission is uh, the reality of hell mm-hmm. should be a gravity mm-hmm. that pulls us back to realizing that there are both temporal and eternal consequences to what we say we believe. Mm-hmm. The Keeping a firm hold on this, this, that gravity of eternal judgment, I think, will help, us, help keep us grounded. It's at least an anchor point that reminds us that, this is, uh, um, that there are eternal stakes here. And I think that in itself can, can serve as a guardrail, a boundary, to, to make sure that our cultural engagement is still connected to the Great Commission, 
not simply to, you know, how to make the church cool or relevant or um, better than, than it used to be. Very good. good. Dee, I want to come back to you. You know, when we're thinking about the culture work that's being done in ministries and churches and families across the country, mm. what are we doing well? Uh, what are we encouraged? What are you encouraged by? What are you seeing that's uh, really optimistic uh, for, the, for the years ahead? Well, I think, um, I think even this panel, uh, having minorities, having a, a sister in the Lord on a panel in a public discussion like this, uh, engaging people outside of the host's tribe. I think the ERLC models that very well. I'm not just saying that to gas you up on stage, but like I really mean that. Um, this is how you get invited back. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know what? Like in, in, in all sincerity, um, I love that um, we're leveraging technology in a way that we're propagating gospel-saturated responses to the political climate. Like I love Dr. Bruce Ashford's work. Uh, sincerely, he has helped shape me. Um, even even the, the reintroduction of Kuyperian thought and the framework, man. Um, you know, people are quoting Francis Schaeffer once again. Things like that, I think, has given my generation some clues on how do we navigate through these tensions. In addition to that, I think also, um, you know, leveraging other voices um, that are outside of one's own theological framework and, and, and just dealing critically with those things, I think is excellent. Uh, when you see evangelicals, uh, even individuals from the Reformed tradition standing on the same stage, like Propaganda, who's a spoken word artist, a dear brother in the Lord, embraces the Reformed faith uh, next to a Cornell West. That's progress, man. Like, that's something that we can celebrate and champion and say our voices are finally starting to be accepted. We're getting a, a seat at the table of conversation, and what we're doing is injecting this message that is so foreign to those that have been outside of our tribe, and it's actually refreshing to a lot of people. So I think we're doing those things well. Jared, you've written a book, The Story of Everything, which sounds like it would have to be a pretty big book. Uh, but in the book, you know, you're talking about the ways that the gospel connects to everyday life in sometimes some surprising ways. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the heart of that and some of the things that might be helpful in here. Yeah, so the heart of the book is, is trying to take Jesus at his word when he says, I am making all things new. And I'm a Reformed guy, but I still believe all means all. He says, I'm making all things new. So if that's true, right, that means that there is no, um, as you said, uh, you know, quoting Kuiper, there's no square inch outside of his existence. Habakkuk 2.14, the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. So every nook and cranny of creation is going to be gleaming with the glory of Jesus Christ. So if that's true, then it means that our gospel cannot simply be a truncated sort of personal exchange it's not only for lost people. It is, as Paul says in um, the early verses of 1 Corinthians 15, it is the ground of our justification, but also of our sanctification and of our glorification. So what I've done in that book is chapter by chapter look at um, every subject that I can think of, politics, sports, art, culture, literature, uh, parenting, marriage, all of these sorts of things, and show how the gospel um, grounds our joy for those things, uh, is the foundation of our mission in those things, and so if our, if our gospel is that sort of abbreviated personal exchange simply for the uh, evangelistic opportunity, um, you graduate from it after you get saved. Uh, if that's the case, we're going to struggle constantly in our everyday life with how does the gospel apply to this? 
But here's Paul now saying, your daily union with Christ, not just your conversion experience, but your daily union with Christ and your progressive sanctification and your glorification are all rooted in the historical work of Jesus Christ on the cross and out of the tomb. Mm -hmm. Then that means that it applies and empowers and gives us great consolation, uh, not just when we're trying to, quote, unquote, change the world, but when we're changing diapers Mm -hmm. or changing the oil. Um, It has huge implications for our vocation and our personal and our public lives. Matt, I want to ask you the flip side of the question that I asked D.A. He gets to be glass half full, you get to be (laughs) glass half empty. So come in, my pessimist friend. Uh, So as we think about uh, culture work that's being done, what what could we do better? What what opportunities are we missing? Yeah, so I think if we look at the terminology of cultural engagement. I think one interesting question is, where did it come from? Why is it a thing now? And I think one story would be that um, as families have fallen apart and as our thick communi- communal ties no longer exist, we bull alone, to use Robert Putnam's phrase, um, we abstract our engagement with the world. It's no longer centered around our family ties. It's, it's about how we're engaging movies and you know, all of these sort of cultural artifacts. And I think that's a problem in its own right. And what it allows is uh, for practices to happen within our families that deserve careful consideration and, and scrutiny. Um, so as much as we have talked about the public questions of gay marriage and, and the, the legality and so on and so forth, I, I think all of the, those are very, very important. But to me, we have overlooked family ethics, Uh, the ethics of what happens within families. And we need to devote an enormous amount of attention to to that. So to pick one instance, the fact that uh, the Pew Research Forum uh, noted 80% of evangelicals either approve of or think that in vitro fertilization is not a moral issue is to me a central scandal. That, that presupposes whatever you think about in vitro, it has to be a moral issue. It has to be an area in which we think this is a matter of justice. It's a matter of right and wrong. And it's a matter of how we form our families. And we have to be able to attend to our internal practices and reflect critically about those. So I think spending some time looking internally in our families and uh, in our communities and really reflecting on how presuppositions of our world have become embedded in our own lives without us realizing it is, is I think, the central challenge that we face. You know, Jackie, it's, uh, I think it's really easy for us to go through life just in our busyness and even in our selfishness just to take for granted the uh, complexity and beauty and creativity all around us. Is, is that something that you feel like is sort of underdeveloped in most Christians' lives? And how should we go about thinking uh, beauty in general as Christians? Yeah, I, think, um, I think when you even, um, if you remember in Genesis 3 when you know, Eve is conversing with Satan and how she saw beauty in the thing that God said would kill her. Um, she, she, it was a delight to the eyes. And so in that, I don't think that the tree wasn't beautiful, but I don't think that the, the beauty of the tree should have led her to disobey Christ. And so I think naturally now, innately, we, I think we find beauty in things that are not beautiful um, and don't find beauty in things that God says is beautiful, um, namely uh, serving people, loving people, engaging the culture, um, like 
everything about God is beautiful. And so I think if you look at beauty in the sense of worship or glory, I think when you, if you dig into that about and how you live, then you discover what's beautiful. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I think our culture, for example, I don't know, they want me to get high all the time. They think that's beautiful. <laughs> but I believe that sobriety, having a right mind, having a clear mind, gives me a real sight of what is beautiful, gives me a real sight of what is pleasurable. And so I think if you think of beauty in terms of worship and obedience, then you have a clear sight of what it actually means. That's a good word. Trevin, as we think about cultural engagement and all of these things that are included in it, you know, I can imagine the criticism being, well, that's great, but... I care about the gospel. I care about the Great Commission. But yet these two things are connected. So how, do we, how does cultural engagement and the Great Commission fit together? When you think about the Great Commission is go into all the world and make disciples, right? So you've got this, um, uh, if you're all about preaching the gospel and you say that you know, proclaiming the gospel is really what's important, cultural engagement you can't compete with that. You say, well, okay, but you, you have to preach the gospel in a language. Yeah. It, has to be compre- it has to be comprehensible. It has to uh, be something that um, uh, when, you, when you think about uh, the best and most effective ways to, to present the gospel, uh, you've got to make choices. You have to understand something of the world that we live in. So I, it, it, it boggles the mind that we, we expect a missionary leaving here to go to a different context to study up on the religion of the world. What are the hopes and fears and aspirations of the people? What are the best ways we're going to, to take the gospel message and we're going to connect it with the people there? And yet here in North America, it's like, well, we, we don't need to do that. There, there must be some sort of leftover imperialism or colonization or something that we think of other cultures as foreign and ours as normal. We don't need culture engagement here. That's for, for missionaries. If, if God has called us to, to present the gospel um, to, uh, um, to be his people, to make disciples. There are all sorts of uh, uh, cultural questions that come up. It's, it's part of sharing the gospel, part of loving our neighbor, is trying to understand our neighborhood, right? That there's the, the, that element of what is it that, that shapes my neighbor. And then you start asking questions about ourselves, you know, where, uh, where do we need to be, to be formed? So I think one of the ways that we can better be better uh, presenters of, of the gospel is to, um, to understand the stories that give shape to the people in our world, the way that they think about life and uh, the world, and then to, to, to tap in and say, what are the longings of the people in this society? Mm-hmm. And then, and, and to, because a lot of those longings are going to be right and good and true. But then the gospel also has that word of confrontation where it comes in and says, well, well, there are also lies happening in this culture. People are turning to the wrong places to fill those longings. So, so the gospel then exposes the lies. You, you've got to be able to see both longings and lies if you're going to bring the gospel uh, to bear and then ask the question, okay, how does the gospel tell a better story? How does the gospel expose the lies of our culture and also answer those deeper longings that people, um, that people have. And I, that takes a measure of engagement. And once that happens, the beautiful thing is um, sometimes we have this image of just lone individuals out there that are engaging culture, you know, uh, kind of on my own, or as like Matt said, just engaging certain artifacts or going to a movie and things. The gospel creates a culture of its own. It's the church. Mm. And so we shouldn't have the image of, of culture engagement as just 
us sort of out on our own. We, we, we actually, the church is not just the delivery mechanism for the gospel. It's to be the full display of the gospel's ethos, the culture that come, that to see grace there, to see the holiness of God, to be awed by the holiness of God, uh, to see what loving neighbor and loving the church looks like. Once the, the church itself is itself a counterculture that's impinging on the cultures of the world, that's really when you see cultural engagement at its best because when a lone individual is out there engaging someone, they know that they have this, this uh, oasis of love and grace and uh, holiness right behind them that this is so important and is the foundation for the, the kind of engagement we, we participate in. Amen. DA, I want to come back to you. You've been uh, involved in the Christian hip-hop movement uh, for some time. This is a movement that has reached you know, thousands and thousands of Christians around the country, around the world. Tell us how what's going on there fits into this conversation here. I think, um, I think Christian hip-hop is a model of what to do and what not to do mm. at the same time. Um, so let me start with what to do. Uh, contextualizing the gospel and high theology to the heart language of a target people group that are without the gospel or without theological tools to give them uh, a toolkit to defend the faith, uh, to communicate uh, evangelism and discipleship. Um, the, the context in which Christian hip-hop was birthed out of is not on the radar of theological education. It just isn't. Um, so you have that tension. But I think uh, what it has done is it's, it's similar to um, the music that came out of the Jesus movement. But one distinctive is that it has brought every nation, tribe, and tongue together. Hip-hop has brought that under the auspice of the corridor of hip-hop. You see nations gathering under this genre of music and finding an identity where those who are believers are saying, instead of the idol of hip-hop, turn your affections to Christ. But where I think it's what not to do, um, internally speaking about the Christian hip-hop culture, fighting over the modifier Christian before hip-hop. We don't need to be doing that in public. That's an in-house conversation, but it's put angst and division amongst our brothers and sisters. Secondly, we need both approaches, one that is evangelistic and one that is culturally engaging. Um, one thing I love about Francis Schaeffer's work is he talked about high culture, but hip-hop actually speaks to the lower common culture and says this is how we appropriate the context of Scripture. And then finally, I think one thing um, is an example of what not to do is don't pigeonhole the artist. Number one, I think Christian hip-hop has surface Christian color blindness. Uh, you see an artist, I don't see them by color, they're my brother and sister. That's a half-truth. You do see their skin color. Affirm their ethnicity. So when they speak out about social issues... I see my brothers and my sisters get loaded up online and in their face where it's like, you're the artist. You were brought in to entertain my youth group. You're supposed to entertain my kids. You're the alternative to Lil Wayne and all these other knuckleheads on the radio. You need to play your lane. Don't speak about racism. Don't speak about institutional segregation. Like you're supposed to just do this. So we pigeonhole our artists and I think that's wrong. Um, and then finally, I think what we also have to do is uh, begin to listen and allow them to be seen in the multidimensional capacities they are, like having Trip Lee speak here yesterday, to God be the glory. He's a husband. He is an author. He is a pastor. Yeah. He's not just some rapper to entertain a youth group. So I think that's where we can do and what not to do with Christian hip-hop. Jared, you know, when we think about Christianity, think about preaching. You know, Christianity at its essence is a, is a message of truth. It's about truth and authority. The, the fact that we need the gospel is because a lie entered the world. And our message is irreducibly about uh, bearing witness to the truth. So how does that responsibility 
and that need to bear witness to truth fit into this conversation about engaging the culture in all these different ways? Yes, certainly I think we're, we're reaching a gut check moment in the evangelical church, especially in, here in the West. You know, I don't think there's any new sins. I don't think, the, you know, the cultural problem that we're looking at, it's not as if America invented that in the 21st century. Um, this is something that's, that's been going on um, cyclically, historically. Yeah. And the, the church, the evangelical church in the West has for too long, I think, tried to play the Lord's game in the world's ways. Mm-hmm. And we're now reaping that rotten fruit of that. We're, we're, we're hitting our head against the wall and realizing it doesn't work. And so now, not, I wouldn't say more than ever, but now is a time for the church to recenter around the, the foolishness, the ridiculousness of the reality that 2,000 years ago, God put skin on and came to die, and we can be united to God through that death and resurrection. The message of the gospel is um, a supernatural thing. And we have tried to work it into culture uh, in pragmatic ways, in ways that are antithetical to the very truth that dropped out of heaven. And Paul says it's going into the world and bearing fruit and growing like it's this alien force, you know, this divine heavenly force. And yes, uh, when people believe, it's because they've heard and they've heard because we have preached. So the gospel is working through us, but it's not sourced in us. Uh, the success of the gospel is not based in our power. It's not contingent on our ability to um, exegete, you know, uh, Hollywood well or, uh, you know, the record companies well. Those things can adorn the gospel, but as soon as they replace it, we have denied the central truth that this is the, the only way people can know God. It's the only way they can be rescued from death and hell. It's the only way, and it is a supernatural thing. So as, as much as every day we are confronted with the earthiness of our culture, the American church has to uh, repent and return to the otherworldly quality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jackie, I want to I wrap up our conversation with you. We have a lot of people in this room, a lot of people watching online, a lot of uh, young moms and dads and students and a lot of younger evangelicals out there, some of whom may be discouraged, some of whom may be just chomping at the bit to engage in a certain kind of way. They're confused. If you could have a pipeline to every young evangelical in the world right now, what would you say to them about how would you encourage them in terms of engaging the culture in God-honoring ways? It's a lot of pressure. I know. <laughs> and, you, and you've got, I'll give you all of one minute and 27 seconds Praise to God. fit it in. So we got nothing but time. All right, you're wasting my time now. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say two things. There's a lot that I could say, but I, I think two things that have been on my heart is, I think as young people, I think we are wasting our lives in some ways. Not all, but it's just like we're just going about doing stuff but not having an intentionality about our lives like I think even social media for example it's like we're on social media we're doing that but we we act as if I think sometimes that social media should not also be submitted to the obedience of Christ and so it's like man does that mean I need to post a scripture every single day? No. But does that mean that you need 236,000 selfies? Absolutely not. And so it's like (laughs) using even online presence for the gospel, for the glory of God. Um, And two, don't be afraid to have children. 
I have a lot of conversations with women and men who don't, they just want to keep it off as long as possible as if children will be an inconvenience, as if it will impede their lives. But I think true cultural renewal not, will not happen. But I think we have to think ahead to the next generation. If we are not raising disciples now, who will be the ones to carry the torch later? And so I think we... I think we... We as young people have to just stop thinking so self-centeredly um, and be willing to just die for the glory of God. Well, that is a wonderful note to end on. Amen. Jackie, thank you. Will you join me in thanking our panelists? Thank you very much. Did it. Kind of. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your word that comes to us and opens hearts and changes lives. We thank you for the truth that there is no square inch. There is no atom, no particle, no area, nothing in all of the universe over which you are not Lord. And that gives us great comfort and great peace knowing that you will return and redeem and that you are God of all, above all. And we thank you. As we think about these issues, we pray that this would be a time that we're able to engage, a time that we are able to devote ourselves to you, a time in which thinking about things like changing oil and changing diapers can be to the glory of your name and your son, Jesus Christ, Father. We thank you for the way that you have revealed your truth to us in your word, in your son, and we pray that you would use this day, this conference, these conversations to make us more into the image of your son, Jesus, to whose great name, in whose great name and his great glory we pray. Thank you for joining us on the ERLC podcast. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes if you enjoyed this episode. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or TuneIn. For more information about cultural engagement and everyday life, visit ERLC.com.